This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also Billion Moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. Elian, you went from being a Thiel fellow to joining Peter Thiel's Founders Fund as a principal. And now you're building water space industries where you basically manufacture products that are impossible to make on earth due to gravity. First of all, we can talk about all that cool stuff. But first of all, I'm just curious. So how does this work, being a VC and a founder at the same time? Yeah, uh, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, complicated to uh, say the least. Uh, part of why I like, you know, working at Founders Fund is that it's somewhat in the ethos of the fund, right? Literally in the name of the fund. Uh, it's Founders Fund. It's a fund comprised of founders for founders. Uh, and even since the earliest days of the fund, uh, there's been a you know, consistent set uh, or a consistent cadence of uh, incubations by the firm. So when the firm we started at the time, Peter effectively also incubated Palantir alongside starting Founders Fund. Uh, uh, later on, uh, one of our former partners, Jeff Lewis, also incubated a company, uh, you know, more recently, Anduril uh, was, you know, incubated about, uh, you know, four years ago now uh, at the firm uh, and then in the past two years uh, both Florida Space Industries and Open Store you know were started by the firm so uh, you know we have some propensity of doing it I think uh, you know part of what uh, makes it work at least you know for me uh, personally I'd say and this you know answer you know may or may not apply uh, to everyone that tries to balance these two roles uh, but in particular I find it to be actually you know quite synergistic on both sides uh, so you know at Varda uh, my uh, relationship with Founders Fund definitely gives us a huge boost in terms of the world of both federal contracting uh, how much attention we uh, get when we go up on Capitol Hill uh, you know the ability uh, to uh, understand the financing market incredibly intimately when we're doing, you know, financing for Varda, uh, all of those, uh, you know, come as huge advantages and are only possible uh, because I you know, uh, also uh, work at Founders Fund. Uh, and then on the Founders Fund, Founders Fund side of things, it's also been, you know, quite advantageous. Uh, you know, part of my uh, pitch to the uh, general partners as I was considering starting Varda uh, was that uh, this would actually be one of the best ways to sort of improve my IRR and returns to the fund. Uh, in that, uh, you know, uh, the venture capital landscape is a highly competitive landscape. There's a lot of different people that are able to, you know, fund companies. And this was a way for me to differentiate myself amongst a, you know, commoditized set of investors where I could provide the value proposition to founders that I was in the thick of it myself because that had a much more, you know, recent viewpoint uh, on actually being in the fundraising market, not just as an investor, but also as a founder, uh, being able to, you know, talk more cogently about, you know, recent executive searches that we're doing at Varda uh, provide makes it so that the feedback that I provide to founders can, you know, sort of land with much higher, you know, empathy and impact. Um, and so, you know, I found it to actually be, you know, wildly, you know, productive on the founders fund side of things to have something, you know, to be working on something, you know, like Varda. So I guess the point being that, you know, in my particular case, you know, one plus one very much so equals three. And so even though there's obviously trade-offs, you know, on time between the two, um, I think I, you know, happen to be in a you know, rare situation where, uh, the uh, lack of focus in some ways is actually, you know, beneficial, you know, for both sides, uh, which is, you know, not something that I would generally, you know, typically, you know, recommend, but I think hmm. uh, there are extreme, you know, scenarios where, where it does, you know, play out, you know, quite well. In particular, since uh, on the investing side, uh, one of my goals is to invest into a, what I believe to be a very fast growing industry uh, and really understand that very deeply. And so uh, that industry, obviously, you know, being aerospace and starting Varda um, has allowed me to have phenomenal top of funnel coverage uh, in terms of uh, making, uh, knowing whenever an aerospace company is being started by, you know, top tier founders, um, as well as, uh, has phenomenally improved my ability to uh, sort of win, uh, you know, competitive investment processes within that industry. And so uh, I think the it, it, incubations can work really well when you also have a more general sort of, uh, you know, industry-wide macro thesis that it's something you want to invest into. Given that, you know, whether 
whether it's investing in you know mobile apps in you know, 2009 um, or investing in the internet in 1996, uh, when you you know invest on you know a uh, trend or industry that is rapidly growing, in some ways it's a lot easier to have you know phenomenal you know, IRR. And that's sort of my thesis right now. With, you know, aerospace is that uh, you know Elon Musk and SpaceX are effectively creating the AWS moment, massively lowering you know, infrastructure costs. Uh, and so if you actually just uh, invest in the you know sort of cream of the crop of the aerospace industry, uh, you're uh, even more likely to have great returns because of you know that booming trend. Right. Definitely, because you have the skin in the game, you can better advise the portfolio companies. Uh, but I'm curious, so are you also actively investing in or actively sourcing and investing in this particular space of aerospace? Uh, yeah, that's probably my most active area. So, you know, on my investing job, I probably spend at least a third of my time uh, investing in and meeting with, you know, aerospace founders. Uh, some of the more okay. recent investments, uh, you know, that I've made uh, are Hadrian, uh, uh, Regent uh, Aircraft, MagDrive, uh, and Akash Systems, uh, are sort of the, the four most recent uh, aerospace companies. Uh, and then as a firm, uh, you know, not myself directly, one of my uh, partners, Scott Nolan, uh, invested in this company, uh, Impulse Space, led by uh, Tom Mueller. So uh, we went from, you know, as a firm, we'd done very little uh, aerospace investing effectively since, you know, 2008 through 10. Uh, and that era is when we originally invested in SpaceX and also invested in Planet Labs uh, and effectively went on a pause except for one company called Asion Systems uh, and then more recently started to pick back up again because you have this first generation of companies that have built up the infrastructure that is now sort of, that is now sort of allowing a next wave of companies to be you know, founded, built atop that infrastructure. And so, um, yeah, no, I'm definitely very actively investing into aerospace companies. Right. Very interesting. So let's dive into this. What is the need to manufacture in space? And when did you first learn that, okay, there are these products that are impossible to make on Earth due to gravity, so we need to start water? Yeah, um, maybe I'll you know answer it in uh, reverse, which is um, you know I first became aware that there was a set of products that have been researched on the ISS that showed major benefit in terms of you know quality and capabilities in 2011, roughly. Uh, the Google X uh, Lunar Prize uh, was a set of uh, aerospace-based prizes uh, that varied from uh, you know driving a rover on the moon and taking video to asteroid mining to uh, in-space manufacturing. Uh, and so, you know, through that, you know, set of prizes became, you know, aware that there was this, you know, opportunity. There was an early set of companies that got founded around that time. Uh, there was uh, Planetary Resources, Moon Express, Made in Space, was sort of this wave of companies that got founded in roughly called 2008 through 2010. Uh, and so through that, you know, became deeply fascinated, was regularly, you know, tracking those companies. And so I had been thinking about it for, you know, quite quite some time before actually, you know, starting uh, Varna finally in late, you know, sort of 2020 or mid-2020. Um, in relation to, you know, what products we made up there, um, uh, I think it's easiest to start off with a uh, physics analogy that explains sort of why bother manufacturing in space. Uh, the very simple physics analogy is uh, if you take a candle uh, and you were to light it uh, in front of you uh, uh, at your desk, you're taught as a child that when the uh, candle lights, it heats up the air above it. And then you're taught as a child that basically the hot air rises, right? Why does the hot air rise? Well, because that chemical reaction is introducing thermal energy into the environment around it. That thermal energy is effectively making it so that the average speed of the gas molecules that are around the chemical reaction effectively increase. Uh, the increased uh, you know, speed makes it to actually lower density, Lower density gases, obviously, in a gravitational field rise, uh, you know, lower uh, density uh, gases fill in that negative pressure. And so you get this, you know, um, uh, you get this effect, which you're taught as a kid, i.e. hot air rises. If you ever put your hand above a candle, you can obviously very much so feel that hot air, you know, rising above it. Uh, and that entire process is, uh, creates uh, what's known as a conductive current, where effectively you have hot air rising, it hits the top of the room, uh, you know, cools down, comes back, and effectively, you know, creates uh, you know, this cycle. If you take that same experiment and run it on the ISS where you light a candle, well, what happens? You still have the chemical reaction, right? You're introducing you know, a flame, uh, there's still that thermal energy being introduced into the gas molecules around it, i.e. you're increasing the speed. But just because you have a lower density gas that is around the chemical reaction, 
when you're on the ISS, there's no up, there's no down, there's no gravity. So there's no such thing as like the hot air rising, right? It has nowhere to really you know, go. Instead, what happens is the hot air just very slowly diffuses effectively into the environment around it. You kind of think of it as like we ever taught as a kid, you know, uh, osmosis, where there is you know, sort of, uh, you know, salt water, you know, outside of the cell and you put a cell, eventually it just bleeds the cell dry off its water. Effectively, the same thing is, you know, happening here and that you're having diffusive transport, uh, you know, being the primary mode of, uh, you know, sort of energy uh, transport uh, and generally molecular transport. Um, so uh, when you, you know, translate that to the variety of different materials that have been set down the ISS, whether it's fiber optic cables, semiconductors, biopharmaceuticals, it's effectively that same you know, difference, i.e. you uh, uh, in these processes that are, have benefits uh, in microgravity, you're typically applying some amount of thermal energy or heat into the system. When you do that uh, on uh, uh, terrestrially on Earth, uh, it creates these conductive currents. So you know, think about it, you're heating up a semiconductor on Earth. Uh, if you're you know, getting into a liquid state, again, you have that, you know, even within a liquid, liquid, those convective currents, if there's different molecular weights within a liquid that you're heating, uh, versus again, on the ISS, you can heat the liquid and instead, it just very in a controlled way, basically diffuses you know, that thermal energy. And so you can effectively think of it as like on Earth, there's increased entropy and molecular movement. In space, there's very little entropy and molecular movement because of the lack of gravity. And when you have less entropy, you can much more tightly control quality. Um, and that can mean in everything from semiconductors that are you know, higher performance and higher density you know, chips to fiber optics uh, that have you know, sort of lower attenuation or basically light can travel through them you know, much farther because they're higher quality. Uh, so you can have biopharmaceuticals where you're able to change the structure of the drug from being a you know, three and a half hour you know, intravenous uh, delivery uh, to being an at-home you know, subcutaneous injection. So uh, the actual you know, end benefit you know, varies obviously dependent on the product, but that sort of underlying physics is effectively you know, the same across the various use cases, which is basically lack of a gravity field means lack of you know, convective transport, which means higher quality. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. So what came first in your mind, the application of this or just the concept that what if we manufacture in space? Uh, I would say it was you know, a, a little bit maybe like halfway between the two in that uh, there was a part of the thesis of Varda that was, uh, let's say, more fundamental trends based, which was one, access to space is clearly going down. And two, this benefit, this benefit of zero gravity is just so fundamental. I, you have four fundamental forces in physics, electromagnetism, you know, gravity, strong and weak uh, you know, force that uh, if you, you know, gave engineers or manufacturing engineers for the first time the ability to effectively you know, turn one of those off entirely, that you know, the combination of the two, cheaper access and you know, such a fundamental benefit uh, that you should be able to you know, find uh, the application. And then I'll admit that we had some ideas, obviously, on initial applications, but over the course of working on the company over the you know, past two years uh, have definitely gone I think much farther than anybody else has ever gone into validating you know some of these materials you know commercially in that you know NASA has definitely done some level of you know research funded experimentation on the ISS but it's you know very different uh, from uh, you know actually finding out what the end commercial customers you know sort of uh, you know price willingness to pay for higher quality is what the unit economics look like what actually specs you need to you know hit uh, and so through diving much deeper into actually building out our sort of go to market and commercialization engine I think I've learned a lot and so yes had some level of you know let's say thesis on the initial material uh, but if I look back in my early notes in summer 2020 about what I thought was going to be the most viable, uh, everything turned out to be wrong. Because it turns out just studying the like NASA papers and their like high level studies was effectively completely irrelevant to you know, what the real world uh, was actually like. <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, I'm actually curious. So what is an example of a product that I'm, I'm thinking you might have tested that this is a product that if, if built, if manufactured in space, it could specifically increase this performance metric uh, as compared to when manufactured on Earth. Like, can you give an example of a product and what performance could be, what particular metric could be increased when manufactured in space? Sure. I, I did mention this just a minute ago, but I'm happy to do it again. So in the world of fiber optics, uh, you can manipulate attenuation, which is basically how far does the light travel, which basically just means that you can uh, you know, have less repeater systems uh, in that fiber optic uh, system. So effectively, you can think of it as like you're just improving the dollars per bit of internet access. Uh, in semiconductors, uh, you can effectively both improve the like wafer uh, you know, quality 
Uh, so think of it as like a yield improvement where you can take a you know, B plus grade wafer that has a set of defects and yield in space and actually you know, improve it. As well, there's been some early studies that actually you know, have shown that there's the potential for a higher you know, chip density. Um, uh, and so you can think about it as a you know, more compute per you know, area, which again is, I mean, in some ways actually similarly also goes to dollars per bit. Uh, and then in the world of biopharmaceuticals, you know, I was uh, referencing actually a particular example where uh, Merck uh, took their blockbuster monoclonal antibody drug, uh, Keytruda, uh, also known as Pembro, uh, and they were able to show that uh, by controlling particle size on the ISS, they were able to take something that typically would require a, a three and a half hour intravenous trip uh, and change it to a you know, sort of effectively two minute subcutaneous injection, things like a syringe that you can take at home rather than three and a half hours you know, sitting at the hospital in the clinic. Um, so those are you know, three, three of the you know, more famous examples uh, on the ISS. That's crazy. I think this would be a really dumb question, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, have you tested this out with the manufacturers over here and have they agreed that, okay, if whenever this is out, we are, we are down to do this? Uh, yeah, so I did, yeah, obviously that's been the you know primary focus. I was kind of you know referencing that you know we did some high level analyses obviously before starting the company, but again most of this was like napkin math and early customer conversations. And a lot of the focus over the past you know two years has been diving in much deeper and actually validating okay with our economics of the actual spacecraft now whether we've actually started to build it with the you know product specs that we can actually achieve uh, are these you know end customers interested? So yeah, that's been a lot of the focus over the last two years has been uh, you know validating uh, that these sort of end customers in these markets and they obviously look very different from semiconductors to fiber optics to uh, to biopharmaceuticals. Right. And you're basically thinking on mass manufacturing all these products that we we were manufacturing over here now in space for a better product. Uh, how, what's your ideal plan? Because right now we are thinking that, okay, right now what I saw on the website is a capsule goes, manufactures, comes back. When you have to manufacture such a mass, how does that look like? Yeah, I think it's a you know, step-by-step process where uh, right now nobody's ever proven out that there's actually significant you know, commercial demand for uh, manufacturing anything in microgravity. So our first you know, handful of missions are effectively you know, demonstration missions with very subscale levels of manufacturing. So uh, think of it as a you know, sort of total system of a 300 kilogram satellite, uh, three main modules in that satellite. Uh, one is basically just the standard components that you need to basically operate a satellite in orbit, you know, solar panels, uh, you know, flight computer, you know, radio, battery, uh, et cetera. Uh, we actually purchased that right now off the shelf from uh, Rocket Lab, uh, it's a photon platform. Uh, uh, and that uh, platform also uh, has a uh, liquid prop engine that actually uh, allows us to uh, re-enter the atmosphere once we're done with our manufacturing process. Uh, the second module is effectively the manufacturing, the material processing, you know, equipment. And then the third module, you know, as you uh, mentioned, is that, you know, re-entry capsule. So those first missions, again, meant to be demonstration systems. You know, that first mission that we do uh, in about eight and a half, nine months, we'll probably only be bringing back, you know, 100 grams of material. Um, and then over time, you know, by mission four, ideally stepping that up to around, you know, 10 kilograms. And the proof of that being that, you know, we can just uh, uh, show a subscale both economics and, you know, show that we can achieve the necessary performance parameters around quality of the materials uh, and show that there's, you know, reasonable economics, not necessarily with the demonstration systems, but in the future when we actually do scale up the system that those economics, you know, do work at. Uh, now, there's a multitude of things you can do to, you know, start to uh, prepare for scale. Uh, the first, you know, very obvious thing is just, you know, scale up the system. If you go from a 300 kilogram system that is only bringing back 10 kilograms of materials, if you go up to a 600 kilogram, you know, System, it actually super linearly, you know, sort of scales the amount of materials we bring back. So 600 kilograms doesn't just bring back 20 kilograms; it actually likely can bring back 40 or 50 kilograms of materials. Um, in some ways, you just you only need one flight computer, you only need one radio, right? So a larger percentage of the spacecraft um, ends up, you know, becoming the actual manufacturing you know, equipment plus and materials. Uh, the second thing uh, that you can do to obviously start to improve the economics to allow for a much larger production uh, is a change from a very disposable paradigm to a reusable paradigm. So you know, similar to how Elon Musk, uh, you know, went from you know, making disposable rockets, landing them in our first likely six to seven missions uh, will actually be effectively disposing of the spacecraft after each manufacturing run. Uh, they're effectively single-use sort of you know, uh, satellite uh, plus manufacturing equipment because we have no way of basically you know, re-docking with the manufacturing equipment with a new re-entry capsule and bring in material. What we would then invest to do is instead leave a call it you know, 600 to 1,000 kilogram you know, satellite in orbit uh, that has all the manufacturing equipment necessary and then invest, in, invest into docking and rendezvous where instead we're just bringing effectively the raw materials inside of a re-entry capsule, docking with the appropriate manufacturing equipment, exchanging it for fabricated materials and bringing it back down and likely making 
making that reentry capsule reusable as well. Um, so now you have this reusable manufacturing equipment in orbit. You have this reusable reentry capsule. The marginal cost of doing those manufacturing runs effectively becomes, uh, you know, the cost of you know launch, uh, which you know, as uh, Elon is showing, are possible to you know massively decrease. Uh, there's no sort of fundamental reason why, if you look at the amount of fuel and delta V that's necessary to get into orbit, it's not that dissimilar from a uh, you know 747, uh, uh, 747's you know fuel usage uh, going transcontinentally across the United States. Um, and so it should be very possible to make it so that sort of the marginal economics of uh, producing in space are quite marginal. And so that's what allows the scale. So again, the way we think about it is sort of prove out in stepping stones that there is that demand, prove out those economics, and then there's very clear ways of sort of you know spending on you know capex that massively uh, improves marginal economics, which allows for scale. Definitely. So you you're basically saying that at scale, it might be possible that we have a factory in orbit going around Earth constantly. Yeah, and, and effectively you're just sending reentry capsules like nonstop. Effectively. Ideally, you basically have a reentry capsule going every day that is, you know, bringing hundred plus kilograms of materials, bringing it back down. And most of these highly sensitive materials that we're discussing, these are not things where it's like, you know, cement where you're, you know, bringing back tons and tons of materials. These are things where it's, you know, likely uh, for each individual manufacturing process, you're bringing back on the order of like hundred kilograms to one ton a day, uh, and that's the you know, sort of total amount necessary to you know, satisfy humanity's uh, consumption. Do you think that entire process could be totally robotic, or we would need human intervention? Um, uh, I think that the early versions have to be entirely robotic in order to make the economics work, right? That's fundamentally why I think the ISS has not been able to show commercial scale is because uh, anytime that you introduce you know, humans in space, you, you know, 10x the economics and the, you know, the complexity of the vehicle. Uh, and so I think you have to do it, you know, fully autonomously. Uh, but, you know, the fundamental you know, mission of BARDA, uh, if, you know, the reason we started it uh, from day one is to expand the economic bounds of humankind, not just, you know, robotics. Uh, and the, the point there being that I think in order to actually have uh, humans have a presence at scale in uh, uh, orbit or in space, you need to have economic incentives for doing so. And I think creating these larger and larger scale robotic manufacturing equipment in production and satellites is eventually what will provide that economic incentive for having humans in orbit. So um, is that going to happen, you know, even when we you know, go from mission six, seven, eight to a reusable paradigm? Still likely not. I think there'll be you know, satellites that are up there that probably can do, you know, eight, 10, 20 manufacturing runs. And then likely something will break. It's not going to be possible to service with like small scale robotics. And so we'll just have to burn that, you know, sort of manufacturing equipment up and then, you know, send up a new one, but it's still better than disposing after each one. But eventually, once you have enough manufacturing satellites, you have a constellation of them, they're having to be regularly replaced. At some point, the marginal economics of just putting one human in orbit, whose responsibility is to maybe aggregate all those manufacturing satellites into a single larger station, and then is responsible for basically you know, handling the maintenance. Uh, I think, you know, that sort of carryover point probably happens when you get to you know, on the order of, I haven't done the perfect math on this, but I'd probably guess somewhere between like 10 to 20,000 kilograms of manufacturing equipment. At that point, there's probably regular enough maintenance that the marginal economics of having a human on board are probably justified. And so our end goal with Varda is to put way more humans up in space than any other, you know, business use case, but it's build up the economics and build up the business entirely robotically, since that's the best, uh, you know, sort of economics today to eventually justify the best economics of having humans in space. And then ideally we have roles at Varda that look very similar to, you know, oil rig workers in the Gulf, where, you know, it's three weeks on, three weeks off, you're taking your re-entry shuttle up there, you're responsible for, you know, maintenance and manufacturing for three weeks, and then you get to, you know, come back and hang out with your family and kids, and we can afford to pay you $500,000 a year for that, you know, not, I mean, in some ways, you know, it's fun for a bit, but, you know, uh, taking a shit in zero G isn't fun after the, uh, you know, hundredth time or so. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny to think about it. How do you think the day in a life of this human or this role would look like who is spending maybe a week, a month, five months in space? I think like not particularly fun. Like you're just like an industrial worker inside a very small you know vehicle, and you know in some ways you're surrounded by a desolate wilderness around you that is very inhabitable, you know, uninhabitable to humans. So uh, I think the early days will be like you know sort of pioneer miners uh, in some ways. Like I, you know, uh, obviously I hope and thankfully you know humanity has been. Uh, quite lucky in that, uh, you know, we've only ever technically, I believe, had three humans die above the Cayman line. Uh, it was, you know, during a reentry process of one of the uh, early uh, Soyuz vehicles. Um, and so obviously, I hope that that forever is the case. 
but I think by default, you know, humans in orbit always carries, you know, very high risk. And so um, I don't think that it's going to be some sort of particularly luxurious experience. And I would argue that even right now, uh, being an astronaut on the ISS is definitely not a luxurious experience, right? You are in a very small cubicle when you need to go to sleep. Uh, you know, you're constantly having to deal with maintenance of this large station that is, you know, there to keep you alive. Um, it's not, you know, it's not an easy experience. It's a lot closer to, let's say, yeah, you know, being a forward deploy Marine at a, you know, at a base behind enemy lines than it is like Bora Bora. Right, right. Wow. Uh, I'm curious. So just like Starlink, you were saying that just like Starlink, how we have constellations of satellites out there, we're making sure that internet connectivity is provided throughout the earth. Similarly, you're expecting there will be constellation of manufacturing facilities that, okay, this is manufacturing fiber optics, this is manufacturing semiconductors. And even for them, this could be a fiber optics for company A, this could be fiber optics for company B. Is that how you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I imagine that within each even material, you'll have specialized you know, processes given that like different biopharmaceutical compounds get processed in very you know different different ways. And so uh, the way that we're at least thinking about it is even on a mission by mission basis at Varda, we are actually slightly varying the manufacturing equipment uh, you know between each one in some ways to vary based off of our customer you know, demands. And so similarly, our constellation of satellites will likely have variations. The fundamental infrastructure will be the same, right? It's going to be the same you know liquid prop engine that brings it back to the atmosphere when its time is done. Uh, it will be the same docking and rendezvous, uh, but the actual manufacturing equipment I think will be you know, sort of wildly different. And that type of specials or that uh, the engineering of that diverse set of manufacturing equipment is in some ways what I think of as like the really core engineering mode that Varda has, right? Uh, we're starting to build up a set of expertise and skills around autonomous material processing in zero gravity, the thermal environment of space that nobody else has really done. There's a lot of companies that know how to process fiber optics, semiconductors, biopharmaceuticals on the ground. Uh, and we are pulling some of those types of engineers, but we're pairing them with aerospace engineers that know how to deal with zero gravity, the thermal environments, the power constraints of operating in orbit. And we're sort of marrying the two and building up a very unique set of hardware capabilities around how to process fiber optics, semiconductors, uh, biopharmaceuticals uh, in orbit uh, that nobody else has ever you know, really had. A question just came into my mind and I'm just thinking about it. Like, Again, I'm not sure, but I've heard that you could basically create zero gravity environments on Earth. Do you? How are you thinking about it? Like, what would be the comparison between zero gravity on Earth versus manufacturing in microgravity in space? Yeah, you know, we always joke that uh, you know if we had a zero gravity chamber uh, in the corner of our lab, our customers could get less of a shit about us going to space versus not. Uh, unfortunately, it's one of these you know, sort of counterintuitive answers that you know in order to create a zero gravity chamber in the back of somebody's lab, uh, that'd be you know uh, that would require manipulating the space time you know continuum, which would be great if humanity had those capabilities. In which case, we also have like warp drives and wormholes, etc. Uh, okay. But yeah, it's one of those counterintuitive things where there's no such thing as zero gravity in space. We live inside of a gravity field. Uh, you know, you could give. You could revive, you know, Einstein and Newton from the dead. You could give each of them a trillion dollars. Give Elon Musk a trillion dollars. Everybody, name your favorite inventor in all of human history. Give them a hundred years and just give them, you know, effectively one rule, which is make it so that when, you know, I'm here on Earth's you know, surface and I let go of this iPhone, make it so that it does not experience the force of gravity. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, not, not not possible anytime soon. And to be clear, even when you're in orbit, no matter where you are in the universe, you're experiencing the force of gravity. Uh, you know, what we're doing when we go to orbit is we just happen to make sure that the, you know, uh, we equal out, uh, you know, the force of gravity from Earth with uh, the centrifugal force, you know, by uh, by orbiting around uh, spacecraft. But even within, uh, you know, within orbit, uh, there are varying qualities of microgravity. So, for example, the International Space Station, because it has a lot of, you know, sort of atmospheric pumps, vibrations, etc., the like, quality of the microgravity environment on the ISS is actually lower than what you could get on a very sort of small robotic, uh, you know, piece of manufacturing equipment, given that you have sort of much less interference from all these other, you know, background processes that are running to keep the humans alive. So, um, yeah, no, it'd be awesome, obviously. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the ability to manipulate the space-time continuum, we're probably anywhere from, I mean, minimum 
500 years to potentially a million years away from being able to uh, you know, do so. Uh, the other analogy that I sometimes like to give is like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, gravity waves experiment uh, by MIT, I believe it was 2018 or 19. It was basically the uh, first time where I believe it was a you know supernova, basically star imploding. Uh, and we effectively, for the first time, they effectively had a very long tunnel underneath uh, MIT that they uh, dug where they were effectively measuring the distance between two points. And they were able to actually show from the supernova exploding that they could effectively see ripples in the space-time continuum that actually change the distance between the two you know, uh, measuring points. Uh, and so the way that I, the analogy that I like to describe is uh, in 2018 was in some ways the first time that we saw the space-time continuum. Uh, and you're telling me, you know, we need to actually go manipulate it. It'd be like telling, you know, a caveman that's seen, you know, fire or seen the sun for the first time to go make a flashlight. It's like, that might happen sometime soon, but it might be another millennia or two before we go from, or, you know, you make the analogy even, you know, more you know, extreme. It's like, uh, you know, the first, you know, sort of single cell or multicellular organisms, uh, you know, developing the first eye and seeing a photon for the first time and telling that multicellular organism, hey, one day you're going to turn into a human that can turn on a flashlight. It's like, that may take, you know, billions of years uh, before we figure out how to do that. So anyways, long-winded answer. And it's a, you know, funnily counterintuitive one, but yeah, no such thing as your gravity on earth, but that would be very cool. Got it. Got it. Perfect. So I think I might have just heard from an experiment in a sci-fi movie or something. Perfect. Uh, people do these like small scale things, but again, they're not zero gravity. So for example, like, you know, people have done like containerless processing where they'll take like a particular mm. piece of fluid and they'll do acoustic levitation where they allow the fluid to float. And so it's like, yes, if the effect that you were looking for was the you know liquid floating in atmosphere or in a vacuum or something like that, yes, that's possible to do. But again, fundamentally, if you know macroscopically, it may look like there's no gravity, right? This thing is not moving. It's this, you know, this droplet that's not floating. But if you go microscopically into the environment of the actual drop, the drop is still inside of a gravitational field. If you apply thermal energy to that liquid drop, if there are molecular weight differences within that drop, it still experiences those same convective currents. Um, so it is a question sometimes we get on these like micro scales. Again, there are ways to you know remove gravity at certain macroscopic scales, but it is irrelevant for the types of materials that you know have benefit from microgravity, given that the whole thing that you're trying to remove is the convective currents, and that's impossible to you know remove. You can make it so that the droplet floats, uh, and it does have some benefits. There's some interesting you know containerless processing experiments in all of these various fields: uh, semiconductor, you know, fiber optics, you know, biopharmaceuticals. Uh, and, but that's not what BARDA does. Right. Another example is indoor skydiving. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, I mean, you can ask the indoor skydiver, do they feel like they're experiencing zero gravity? And they're like, yes, I do feel like you know, <laughs> the like, force upon my body is the equivalent of like the force you know, going down on me. However, if you were to study the inside of their like organs and see whether or not those organs, you know, were still feeling you know, gravity, uh, yeah, I can guarantee you the heart's still you know, pumping and their uh, fluids are still you know, uh, you know, falling downwards. It's not like they are going to start experiencing the puffiness that astronauts do on the ISS where uh, you know, their body can no longer regulate their fluids. So that's actually a good right. analogy maybe that I should use sometime. It's like, is skydiving zero gravity? It's like, you know, well, uh, you know, or indoor skydiving, I mean, indoor skydiving zero gravity? No. Uh, the right. closest you can get to zero gravity on Earth is actually real skydiving or what uh, is known as like the 747 bomb mm. comet, right? Where effectively you take this plane and purposely basically dive bomb it such that you're actually basically creating a three fall, you know, environment. So you can get about like, you know, 20 to 25 seconds of decent, uh, you know, zero gravity uh, by uh, doing that. But it's rare that any of these material processes that we're doing uh, can get anything done in that short of, uh, period of time. And also we are crashing a big airplane that's worth millions of dollars. Uh, they, they have figured out how to at least make it so that it just flies a parabola over and over again. Okay. This is actually what they have to uh, you know, train, uh, train NASA astronauts. So if you actually Google, you can actually fly, a, uh, you got to take it on it for fun. I think it's like ten or $15,000, so it's expensive. But um, you, know, you, can, you can go up there and then you experience in parabola? Like 14 or Yeah, in parabolas, you'll do like 14 or 15 parabolas and you'll get like you know, you know, 20, 30 seconds basically of zero G. And so um, they've actually like, filmed some movies on there. I think like Tom Cruise actually did one of his movies uh, basically inside of one of those, you know, what they call the vomit comet, given that uh, basically because your stomach keeps going through like zero gravity, and then double gravity and then zero gravity, double gravity. And obviously very much so your, your stomach's fluids are not too happy uh, going through that. So basically everybody vomits, um, but, uh, but it's a good you know, training environment for astronauts for their you know, first time to just start to get a little bit accustomed to uh, zero gravity. 
that is crazy. I didn't know that this sort of thing exists, exists like where you pay 15,000 for going up and down like that crazy. Uh, my brother was actually watching Top Gun Maverick and he was like, hey, what is this Mark 10 thing? And how do you feel? And I'm like, that is crazy. Uh, it's, it's a crazy experience, right? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Top Gun showed a vehicle that has never been built. Uh, you know, uh, humanity has never flown a human-rated vehicle that goes, you know, Mach 10. And uh, right. technically, the radius of the curvature uh, that he did, I think, would have had him experiencing, I think, over 200 Gs, because uh, he claimed to be doing, I think, like a 30-mile-long turn. Uh, if you're going Mach 10, you do a 30-mile turn, you experience 200 Gs a human, which would effectively instantaneously, uh, you know, kill you. So, uh, anyways, they took some liberties. You know, everything else in the film, very, very accurate. A lot of their, you know, flying around through the Russian mountains, et cetera, that was all real footage. The Mach 10 thing had a little... Uh, artistic flavor let's say to it that was not quite scientifically accurate uh i'm, I'm curious though what was the planning that was done before starting water space because things take a really long time in this world of space and government uh and defense contracting so it's not easy just like a SaaS company where you just you can figure things out on the fly so what was the planning that went behind this I, you know, I'd say the majority of it was just, you know, finding the appropriate, you know, talent and team. You know, as I started to think about this idea in summer 2020, the most important thing was recognizing what was necessary to go independent of the ISS. And the uh, counterintuitive thing is that the missing step in the sort of like supply chain of zero-G manufacturing independent of the ISS was not getting up to space. You can do that relatively easily now on like Falcon 9, uh, other, you know, rocket launch providers that are coming online. It wasn't necessarily even doing the manufacturing independent of the ISS. That too, again, you know, Starlink, et cetera, had shown that you can obviously operate large-scale, you know, satellites, uh, you know, and constellations of them, uh, you know, independent of the ISS. The thing that was actually the missing step in the supply chain was actually the re-entry vehicles. Once you were done bringing the materials back down, um, given that when you're on the ISS, you sort of get a free ride down from the Soyuz, the Dragon, um, uh, the Cygnus, the Starliner, et cetera. Uh, and so one of the first things that we really focused on was basically building out a like, founding both a set of founders. You know, my, my co-founder was at uh, you know, SpaceX for uh, seven and a half years working on the crew in the Cargo Dragon, as well as building out an initial you know, founding team that had a lot of uh, you know, sort of executives from the crew in the Cargo Dragon project come and join us as obviously like founding uh, engineers and leaders. Um, and so uh, that is what really made it possible to operate at the cadence that we've you know, operated at. We effectively, my co-founder and I, uh, you know, had our first phone call talking about BARDA. Uh, exactly two years and one day ago uh, today, um, uh, and effectively, you know, started putting together a sort of uh, napkin uh, sort of uh, launch schedule that we would uh, hit. And the reason that we've been able to hit that and maintain the pace is largely because of the talent we put together. So, uh, I guess my answer to you is that there wasn't actually, in some ways, like a lot of like planning that happened before starting the company. We effectively just started the company with a set of you know engineers that had worked on a very similar problem. In that, uh, the crew in the Cargo Dragon is the closest commercial corollary to what we're working on in terms of the piece of technology that we needed to you know build out that logistics, our reentry vehicle. Now. Now, the crew and the cargo dragon are like $100 million human rated vehicles, our reentry vehicles, effectively like the Model T equivalent, you know, uh, ideally manufacturing these things at 500K a pop and have an assembly line of them. Uh, but still, uh, you know, the, the set of engineering you know, skills necessary has a lot of overlap. And so uh, what has really allowed us to operate at the pace that we're at is uh, because of the, the quality of the team that we put together. What was the specific experiences that you were looking for? Uh, so a, uh, the, as a part of building a reentry vehicle, there's a very sort of different set of engineering problems that you deal with relative to just building a spacecraft, right? So uh, when you're just trying to build something, let's say like a Starlink satellite bus, you have to uh, you know, deal with the major components, right? Uh, you know, the solar panel, the battery, the radios, the flight computer. Um, there's a set of engineering expertise that you know come with that. You know, flight software, uh, mechanisms, uh, structures, uh, RF engineers, thermal analysis, ground navigation and control. So we still needed all of those types of engineers by default, given that we not only are obviously uh, uh, operating uh, the reentry vehicle, but we're also operating our manufacturing satellites. So we needed that. There are a set of uh, engineering skill sets that are very narrowly you know, specific to reentry. Uh, in particular, thermal engineers that have actually had to deal with the thermal environment of reentry, which effectively makes it so that when your heat shield is reentering through the Earth's atmosphere, you're reaching you know, effectively the uh, you know, surface temperatures of the sun, uh, as well as uh, the sort of hypersonic modeling and the uh, aeros uh, sort of uh, aeroparameter modeling of uh, how does that uh, uh, reentry vehicle interact with the atmosphere 
um, while it's going you know, such high speed. So those are much, much narrower skill sets that is a much thinner talent pool uh, to pull from. Uh, and so that was what you know, made it uh, very critical to pull from uh, the SpaceX crew and Cargo Dragon team was because that is one of the only basically commercial teams that had that engineering skill set that had obviously succeeded in building you know, that type of vehicle. Um, so there's a wide set of engineers that have built satellites in orbit that we could pull from a lot of different areas, but specifically reentry vehicles, that is a very narrow skill set that is not very well developed, uh, let's say, um, by humanity, given that there's not been that many reentry vehicles built. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, that's that. That's probably the uh, most unique piece of engineering here. Right. I'm actually curious. So from your employee base, what percentage were already in the space industries, let's say working at SpaceX, working at some other space startup or company? And what were people who were first time in space? Um, you're doing the rough math off the top of my head. I'd probably guess that it's on the order of like 80, 85% of our employee base um, has right. operated in airspace before, maybe even 90%, um, yeah, somewhere around right. there. And what sort of roles are that, that 10% where you don't need space experience, but you can be really helpful to a space economy or space startup? Uh, for example, like you know, some of our flight software engineers, like if you've just been a software engineer in embedded systems, whether it was robotics or things on the ground, as long as you kind of know C, C++, you can definitely you know, contribute uh, to flight software. Um, uh, you know, our IT hires, you know, our IT is not that dissimilar than other terrestrial, you know, IT, uh, you know, companies. Um, let's see what our other ones, um, when someone's just looking around the office, trying to think who <laughs> doesn't have an aerospace background. So yeah, I guess not that, that many, uh, right. the, the handful that, you know, come to, come to mind. Uh, yeah. Even like our BD and sales team, everybody has an aerospace background. So, okay. uh, yeah. How have you thought about building a BD and sales team? Because over there, again, you need experience with people who have already worked with Def defense contracting and in the aerospace industry what was that like yeah uh so uh, it's a relatively small team today so i can literally you know just talk uh, through it uh, we effectively have uh, two hires beyond just myself uh, the first hire was actually at stripe interestingly enough for the first five years of their career uh, in financial services uh, but then even while he was at stripe he actually did a handful of uh, deals related to actually selling uh, stripes uh, financial processing to the government uh, and then from there uh, joined zipline which is a sequoia-backed uh, medical supplies drone delivery company, and they actually closed a relatively meaningful contract with the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, and so basically previously had um, that type of sort of federal sales experience. Uh, and then our second, uh, you know, sort of BD and sales hire actually came from uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, but uh, wanted to get into the you know, world of startups, but actually, you know, within Northrop, I'd say worked on some of their more innovative and uh, sort of net new business units. And so, uh, yeah, right now our you know, team came with a lot of that sort of federal and aerospace background, uh, and then more recently have started to scale up a, you know, sort of new team that has a little bit more uh, sort of commercial uh, materials experience with the particular material that we're manufacturing. So the first sort of year year, year and a half of the company, we were primarily focused on a handful of early DOD contracts. They'll start to talk about a bit more publicly over the course of the year. Um, and then only in the past sort of four or five months, have we've been able to finally spend some time more so on the uh, commercial materials that we're producing. Got it. Got it. I, I told you earlier before starting this conversation about how I really thought your conversation around government contracting, defense contracting was really interesting where you shared the insights. I'm curious, how do you think about government as a customer over here? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's some uh, net new tech companies that have started with government being their primary and long-term customer, obviously Founders Funds Incubation and Rural being the by far best example of this, right? They're effectively trying to build a next generation defense prime. And so government is their earliest customer and also their primary customer for the many years to come. And then they eventually might start to expand into the world of uh, commercial. Uh, for Varda, I think of it as a you know, bit differently. I'd say most uh, companies uh, probably fall closer to our side of the equation in the world of aerospace more so than uh, the Andorl side of the equation in that we see uh, the you know, DOD and the government as a great early 
early adopter, uh, willing to pay for R&D of technologies uh, and willing to pay sort of ahead of the curve. Uh, but uh, ultimately, uh, commercial markets are our long-term you know, focus. And so it's been a great way to both accelerate our development. For example, we recently announced our partnership with NASA, where they're actually providing us heat shield materials, licensing us the actual heat shield technology so we can scale up, their, scale up that heat shield production uh, internally ourselves. Uh, and that was only possible through engaging with these types of you know, sort of government customers that we were able to get access to that material. So it not only gives you, you know, sort of early dollars that are non-dilutive, uh, but actually has accelerated our technological you know, roadmap. And so uh, I find that the government can be a phenomenal you know, early customer, uh, but at least for us, isn't where we're seeing you know, sort of the long-term upside. And so thus, again, the first sort of call year and a quarter of the company really being focused on you know, sort of government customers uh, and then now shifting you know, more of the primary focus to the commercial. That makes sense. Now, when people think of space, they think of SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic. NASA recently kind of re-emerged with JWST, James Webb Telescope, and these images are beautiful. How are you thinking about the role of NASA as this startup community, startup ecosystem is now growing? Yeah, I think there are two things that are you know changing. The first is I think NASA is getting more and more comfortable as uh, you know being sort of a financial market maker, i.e. Uh, setting up, you know, uh, buckets mm. of, you know, budgetary uh, dollars and then uh, acting as the sort of, uh, you know, contracting, you know, service as opposed to building everything in-house themselves, right? For a very long time, NASA was accustomed to effectively hiring up their own internal headcount uh, and then, you know, partnering with contractors versus now instead fully delegating to the commercial industry uh, to actually, you know, do do the full build. And so I think they're leaning more and more into that. Uh, you're seeing that in relation to the Artemis program where, you know, most of the Artemis program in terms of bringing humanity back to the moon is these types of uh, very similar programs to how they did uh, both launch as well as uh, uh, the Crew Dragon uh, and, the, um, uh, uh, and the Boeing Starliner you know, projects. Uh, and so I think they're getting much more you know, comfortable uh, in that world and are continuing to lean into it. And at the same side, I see you know, sort of uh, the other side of you know, NASA's core focus being uh, really you know, expanding the tip of the edge of you know, sort of the technology curve. More and more robotic missions you know, to Mars. I think the uh, you know, sort of recent Mars mission where they you know, had the secondary payload of the uh, helicopter that has now done almost as much science as the entire primary payload and it's become an extremely exciting capability that humanity now has to actually fly a vehicle on a different planet. Uh, obviously, is incredible. You can just cover you know, far more, uh, far more you know, mileage and get a very you know, unique and interesting you know, vantage point uh, by being able to you know, fly a helicopter on another planet, which is crazy to say. Um, and so I think those are the two areas that you know, I think I see NASA really playing, acting as that sort of market maker and incentivizing you know, the uh, you know, early uh, space economy and uh, some of these you know, sort of nearer term missions, as well as acting the, as the you know, sort of primary builder and contractor for some of these you know, sort of further out, more scientific uh, missions, that, but that maybe don't have immediate commercial applications. Right. Interesting. Uh, I'm actually curious. So do you think that only billionaires can make huge impact in the space industry? I think that was the case up until call it like 2015, 16. But honestly, again, I think we're going through this you know moment where Elon has effectively created the equivalent of like the 2009 AWS moment for the internet, where um, as opposed to having to actually you know manage and own and operate your own servers and uh, server farms, all of a sudden now is a very you know sort of scrappy entrepreneur with relatively low cost, you can actually you know access the infrastructure yourself. And so I do think that has you know changed the bar. One of our uh, one of my you know colleagues uh, that, that, that's on the you know board for Varda, Trace Stevens, uh, would always joke with us in the early days of the company. He was like, you know, good luck, guys. You guys are tackling a very difficult problem. And as far as I can tell, only billionaires. Have ever built you know space companies uh, and hopefully so far we're starting to you know prove the fact that you know neither my me or my co-founder were billionaires in starting the company but i think we're making pretty good progress so far obviously we have to give us a, a few more years to figure out whether or not this this darn thing's going to work definitely and now throughout like while researching you you have talked a lot about incentives how are you thinking about the economic incentives structuring incentives to progress the space industry yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I think uh, is under, you know, discussed or analyzed is in some ways you can bucket any type of aerospace company into two types. There's aerospace companies that only sell to other aerospace companies. So think like a rocket company, right? A rocket company's only customers are going to be satellite companies or other people that are basically buying things that go on top of the rocket. They're not going to be like your grocer down the street, as an example, that is going to be like buying space on a rocket company. 
those are great because those types of companies are very necessary in order to build up the infrastructure, allow access to space, et cetera. But fundamentally, that creates a bit of a bubble of people that only sell to one another. Ultimately, if you want to create a sustainable economy, you need a lot of companies that are in the second category, which is aerospace companies that sell to not aerospace companies. So think Planet Labs that sells their you know, observation data to like hedge funds or Varda that you know, sells our you know, uh, manufactured materials to our end customers. Our end customers have nothing to do with aerospace. And so you know, one of the things that I really think about is when you're studying the space economy in some ways, the way to gauge the health is what is the percentage breakdown of the market capitalization of the entire space economy between those two, right? So if you take a look at like SpaceX as an example, the majority of the market capitalization is actually not because of their rockets in the launch business. It's largely Starlink because that's actually what connects their company to the rest of the industry or the rest of the world, or the rest of the economy in some ways, and it's actually the much more valuable thing, i.e. providing internet you know, via Starlink. And so uh, I think that's one of those things that is you know, under-analyzed uh, by most aerospace investors is uh, you know, figuring out uh, for even their own portfolio or the companies that they're investing in, uh, you know, do they fall more into the former versus the latter, um, given that ultimately if you only keep investing in companies that only sell to one another, ultimately the economic incentives is that effectively you know, create a you know, bubble where you're completely disconnected from the real world economy. Got it. All right, Dalian, this was really good. Thank you so much for coming on. I think I learned a lot, a lot with this one. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.